Sneak up on you. Uh, Read the uh, recent cockroach dissertation. We have a note here from a cockroach fan. And I think that uh, since we are a very small minority, obviously, from a lot of the other notes that I've gotten (laughs) testifies, I would like to uh, just bring this uh, little note to other fans. Uh, Your recent quote, your recent dissertations on cockroach racing remind me of the Floridian roaches. Have you ever seen a three-inch man-eating roach? Oh, yes. Uh, The Floridian roaches down there sometimes weigh as much as five, ten pounds. And you get a good Floridian roach wearing his tennis shoes, and you've got a fast roach. I'll tell you that. He says, sprinkle talcum powder on your chest at night, and you might just wake up with footprints all over you. He says, the Florida roaches are tame. Although my cousin has trained his pet roach down in Florida to surf on a tongue depressor. The roach got wiped out when someone pulled a drain on the tub. Well, could be careful of those things. It's just as easy to get, you know, just one guy walking along with his Tom McCann Brogans. is liable to wipe out your entire stable of prize-winning roaches. <laughs> Speaking of... Uh, Oh, yes, yes, before we go any further, I just got to do this. No, this is very important. I don't know whether anybody else is ever going to mention it on the air, but we got a card from somebody. It says, uh, don't forget, uh, the 20th of May is a historical day. That's just, you know, over the weekend, that'll be Sunday, Monday. Monday is the 20th of May. And remember that. And a little note here says, on the 20th of May in 1927, exactly 41 years ago, Charles Lindbergh, took off from Roosevelt Field, Long Island, for Le Bouget Airdrome, Paris, France. Thirty-three and one-half hour later, the flight, by the way, began at 7.52 a.m. and ended in Paris at 10.22 p.m. the following evening. Let us salute Lucky Wendy, please. He was born with wings as great as any bird. No. A lucky star. A lucky star. All together, gang. Now, let's go. Turn up the banjos. Lucky, 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 Smithsonian Institute, you know, and uh, for those of you who don't know what kind of an airplane it was, it was a Ryan monoplane, which uh, at the time was a very, uh, at the time, I'm, I'm speaking historically, so don't for a minute think that that was, I was a contemporary of that vast event. I was, I was uh, just a little tiny wee thing, but I will tell you this, that historically that airplane was a, uh, the Ryan airplane of that period, the one that he used was a was considered a luxury private business type aircraft. Well, luxury, I mean, yeah. And uh, he had a special. It was all specially fitted out. And uh, this, this is the uh, give you the. I, I don't have any of the technical details here at this point, but almost entirely the, he took out all the all the insulation, everything in the airplane. It was just a shell. And uh, so that he could have room for gasoline. Obviously, the problem in getting from uh, Roosevelt Field, Long Island, to Paris is going to involve gasoline more than anything else. 
So uh, he uh, he fitted this thing up with tanks all the way in the back, had big tanks. It was like a flying gas tank, really loaded with with uh, high octane for that period petrol. Uh, the the gas of that period would have made, believe me, your Pontiac cough. I mean, it was so bad. But nevertheless, he had this baby filled up with this high octane gasoline. And the Roosevelt Field, Long Island, that day, according to the historians of the period, was a cold, rainy, it was a bad day, and the field was wet, crummy. And uh, a lot of people, he, he, was, uh, he was all by himself, of course. It was not a big organization behind him or anything like that. And uh, some, most people thought he was a, an idiot for trying to get out of that field on that day. The ceiling was low, practically zero. The rain was coming down. The wind was in gusts. It was a terrific crossed wind. And remember, he was flying a plane that was really loaded to the gunnels, really loaded down, and on a wet field. And so uh, at 7.20, what was it, 7.25, 52, 7.52 a.m., he decided that, uh, actually he decided around 7, I guess, a little bit before that, went out and warmed the plane up, looked at the sky, the wind was blowing, and there was a crowd of reporters out there and a guy with a camera who has recorded that event for posterity. Have you ever seen the films of that takeoff? They're really wild. And uh, this little monoplane, about uh, the, the actual size of this airplane compared to today's aircraft, of course, it was tiny. It was, uh, it was uh, I would say, about the size of the average Cherokee 140, maybe, something like that, in actual physicals. Not, not too much different. And it had a... Uh, it was a high-wing monoplane, of course, strutted. And it was not a biplane. You know, a lot of people have an idea that all old-fashioned planes were biplanes. <laughs> and incidentally, a lot of people think that, that uh, biplanes are all ancient planes. They still build biplanes, for those of you who don't know much about aircraft, that biplanes are used and are very expensive. Uh, they build biplanes for use in specialized uh, activities. For example, uh, biplanes are built all the time for aerobatic use. They use these in uh, air shows and, and competition and so on. They also use millions of biplanes. And, of course, I mean it literally, but the, figuratively, rather. But they use many, many biplanes all over the world in crop dusting activities, which are new biplanes. They're not ancient planes. Uh, you can still buy a brand-new spanking biplane if you want. So the, the biplane is not, uh, by per se, an, an ancient aircraft. It did so happen that, well, uh, actually, uh, many of the really, truly antique airplanes were monoplanes, and low-wing ones at that. Uh... The, the famous uh, monoplane flown by Louis Blériot uh, was a monoplane, the first plane that flew across the channel. Blériot was a, was a French flyer. And uh, his plane, if uh, you're going to be technical about it, was a mid-wing. It was not, it was, yeah, the wing was, was, mid, was, the, was midway in the fuselage, and it was strutted. It had uh, cantilever struts, sort of, but it was a, it was a bike, but it was a monoplane, and, uh, and uh, that was a very early airplane. But uh, nevertheless, uh, Lindbergh got out there in that field, and uh, and he warmed the plane up, and it was a bad crosswind. He didn't have uh, good wind for, for his takeoff. The wind hindered him more than helped him. And he started to, started to churn his way down that runway through puddles and one thing and another, which uh, uh, add, uh, give you a little more drag, by the way, on your takeoff, which isn't so good either. So he's flapping down that runway with that baby filled, filled with gas, and a lot of people figure he wasn't going to make it. And he almost didn't make it. Uh, way down at the end of the runway, when he had that baby just barely going flying speed, he hopped up and down once or twice. He got it off the ground. She came back down. 
until finally he got it off the ground and he slowly started to climb with, I believe, from the pictures I remember, his left wing a little low. And he, he, uh, he just barely cleared some, some wires, some high-tension wires at the end of the... Just, boy, by like about a foot. And he just barely made it off these high-tension wires and over some trees... And he slowly climbed into this gray, leaden sky. All the people are down there watching him and cheering. And, and uh, off he goes. And he headed that baby. He headed her east. And off she went. Out across the Atlantic. Disappeared into the gray. Now, they didn't have... Ra- he did not have radio, by the way. For those of you who wonder about that. He did not have two-way radio. So there was no way for anybody to know where he was. Or how he was doing or anything. Now, there was radio available at the time, but the reason he didn't put radio in there was to hold down the weight. So it isn't that long ago, I mean, uh, that they didn't have anything. It just There was no radio in that airplane. And there was radio, however, on other aircraft at the time. In fact, uh, they used radio in airplanes during World War I. Uh, radio was used very extensively, particularly in observation planes in World War I. And they used code, CW. And so the... Uh, the guys would fly around in, in as early as 1914 uh, and 15. They would fly around over the, uh, over the enemy lines and direct artillery with a key. Uh, tell them where they were, where they should, uh, how they should adjust their sights and so on. And uh, so radio was not, was not unavailable. He just didn't have it. Now, what he had in the plane, as far as instrumentation is concerned, was very, very... I saw the plane. I, I looked in the plane at the Smithsonian, and they had a, a replica of it. Uh, by the way, the, the Ryan was built in St. Louis, and that's why it was called the Spirit of St. Louis. And uh, the Ryan airplane, is this interesting to you? The Ryan that, that he flew was instrumented about the way, and that's another thing. Almost everybody today believes that any light plane, any private plane, is a Piper Cub. Uh, yeah, I'm, many people will come up there, of course you fly a Piper Cub. Uh, <laughs> and the Piper Cub has not been built for probably 20 years. That's that's a considered an ancient aircraft almost today. Uh, there are Piper Cubs flying, but they are quite rare compared to the number of planes that are in the air today, the Cessnas and the Cherokees and one thing or another. However, uh, the, the instrumentation on this plane was rudimentary. He had an altimeter. He had an oil pressure gauge, a turn and bank indicator. I believe he had a tack. Sure, he had a tachometer. He had a thermometer to give him the outside temperature. Uh, let's see. I believe he had uh, an ammeter to tell what his, uh, his ignition was doing. And that was about it. That was about the extent of it. He had, uh, he had rudder pedals and a, and a stick. And he flew that little old baby all the way across. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you, even today, I mean, do, don't uh, you know? People have a tendency. That's kind of a kind of a joke, uh, you know, the whole thing of Lindbergh. But man, uh, today, anybody taking off with a single-engine airplane, with no radio, uh, with no navigational equipment, he had no gyros. He didn't have any of this stuff involved. He, he was not using Omni, friends. He had nothing in that baby. Anybody taking off. Uh, well, he, he, I don't. I wonder whether he would get permission to do it today. I doubt whether they'd even... Well, I suppose you could do it legally. But, you know, there's always some think. Uh, that reminds me, though, this is WOR. And uh, <laughs> in, uh, this is Radio Free Broadway. 
and this is old friendly me, and uh, would you please, if you will, uh, he didn't even take so much as one bottle of beer with him. Hit it there. Yeah, that's happy music, friends. And that means happy times. And that calls for something special in beer. And that means, of course, Miller High Life. Nothing can compare with the hearty, robust, deep down, good flavor of Miller. And that's why it's called the champagne a bottle beer. So, well, why don't you try a snoo- I mean, a glass full soon. Yes, sir, you've got nothing to lose but your taste for other beers, man. You'll be turned on Miller High Life. Always the champagne a bottle beer. Tie one on this weekend. here for you, friends, a little commercial whoopee. If you're going to do any electrical work around a house, like rig up an electric chair or something, we'd like you to think, of course, of Rosetta. If you're looking for just exactly the right appliance or wire, a chandelier, a little jazzy that you can turn on and make your amp look blue, a desk lamp or a bed lamp or a burglar alarm, this is all Rosetta, of course. They have exhaust fans. They have the whole scene, stove hoods. They have black light. They have a... Uh, Infrared light. They have they have lights that haven't even been invented yet down there. You turn some of those babies on, you'll see your bones in the dark. It serves the public for over 30 years, Rosetta. And they have a big store at 79 Chambers Street, 75 West 45th Street. And they have a new fantastic showroom at 73 Murray Street, two blocks west of the city hall. And if you're going down in that direction, heading towards Jersey, you just stop by. This, right by the subways and the buses. Remember, friends, it's Rosetta. My Rosetta, my Rosetta. Would you please press that button that's lighting up there, the one with the dollar Actually, sign on it? Jan, I just never realized married life was going to be so complicated. How do you mean, complicated? Well, all the planning and the shopping. It's all so new to me. I know, Marge. I've been through it. To think I used to have all this time to myself. And now mostly all I have is headaches. Let me give you some advice. Hmm? First, it takes time to get adjusted. Mm-hmm. Second, when your head hurts... Anison. Today's Anison contains the strongest pain reliever you can buy without a prescription. Today's Anison. The truth is, with all the drugs in the world to choose from, doctors themselves most often recommend the pain reliever in Anison. And Anison gives you more of this specific pain relieving ingredient than any other leading headache tablet. The medical facts are that just two Anison tablets can give you all the headache relief you should really need quickly when you need it most. So next time, headache, pain, and its tension hit home. Get all the headache relief you should really need. Today's Anison. You want to hear more about Lindbergh? Do you really? I mean, you know, it's Friday night. What the heck? You know, we've got all the time in the world here. You know what? Another thing about uh, this... uh, Again, getting back to the instrumentation, uh, he had really the basic instrumentation, almost the same instrumentation that appeared on the very first Wright Brothers airplanes. <laughs> Not much different. And uh, uh, for those of you who have wondered about flying, the same principles hold that the that the primary uh, instrumentation of even the big 707s or the 737s or the 729s. Uh, the basic instrumentation that uh, Lindbergh flew with is still the basic instrumentation. Basic, I'm using that word very carefully. The basic instrumentation 
of the aircraft that you fly uh, to L.A. with. Now, uh, Lindbergh flew out, and uh, he, he uh, took off over the ocean, and they were relying on various ships and so on to see him and uh, report back uh, as to when he went over. And he flew along and uh, kept a log, and by the way, wrote a great book on it. Uh, there are two good books that he wrote on the, uh, if you want to read great classics in the field of uh, both adventure literature, good writer, Lindbergh, uh, and flying literature. Uh, I believe the first one he wrote was simply called We. And then he wrote one called, was it The Spirit of St. Louis? Yeah, they made a great movie on that. It was a good movie. And uh, he flew, he flew uh, at uh, varying altitudes across the ocean, uh, trying to always uh, stay with uh, some kind of a tailwind or at least minimize the headwinds so that he could uh, keep, and at, at the same time minimize the problem of icing, which happens sometimes in this time of the year at certain altitudes. And he flew along with uh, nothing but in the plane with a, uh, I think he had a thermos bottle of coffee and a, and a pack, of, and one sandwich, wasn't it? One or two sandwiches, something like that. And that was it. That was his total... Uh, the airplane had a heater in it, I believe. I'm uh, thinking about that now. It might have, might not have. But the, most of the airplanes do, and uh, some kind of a manifold heater of some kind. And he flew along and uh, trusted to uh, pure dead reckoning as far as uh, navigation is concerned. He flew by compass. Uh, he, uh, he, he listened. No, he did not have any uh, way to listen to the ground as far as I know. No receiver in it. And uh, he just simply flew along, uh, flying a compass route, knowing he knew the winds before he began. He checked with the weather. He knew what the, what the winds were going to be, the comparative speeds of them and so on, or at least what they were supposed to be. And he flew along and hoped that he'd one day, one, one hour, uh, hit something, which he did. <laughs> and he, he flew in over the coast. I believe it was over the coast of Ireland. Wasn't that something like that? And uh, he flew in low, and he, uh, he began to see fishing boats. I think the first thing he saw, he saw some seagulls flying out. And he saw a couple of boats, and they're waving. They don't know what's going on. They <laughs> see this airplane flying by. The airplane was a, an extremely rare thing at the time. And uh, he flew low over the, uh, the first landfall he made to try to identify where he was. And uh, he made a guess then, and he flew across the channel. And uh, he flew along uh, over France. And headed, and of course it's getting dark. It's night now, and he saw the lights of Paris. He actually flew in by seeing the lights. He figured, well, that has to be Paris. He saw all those lights there, and they were all waiting. Of course, millions of people, because the word had gotten back that this plane had been seen over the coast. Can you imagine that fantastic moment? I mean, and, and he flew over uh, the airport, and he was so low on fuel that he he couldn't run any risk of of circling this field much. And he just flew over, took one look at the at the runway. And there were millions of people crowded down there on Le Bourget airfield. And he saw the Eiffel Tower, too. This is a, one of the things he used for a navigational landmark. And then uh, he came down on the runway, and he laid that baby down. And of course, he'd been flying straight, solid, for over 33 hours. And he was practically out of his head with being tired and stiff and cold and everything else. And he came uh, roaring down that runway... And the, the gendarme were out there trying to hold the crowd back. And the instant that the that the plane uh, started a taxi back towards the towards the administration building, this crowd broke through, and millions of them just surged. Did you ever see that movie? The the, the the films of that boy is that ever dramatic? 
And uh, millions and millions of people just surged forward. And uh, he was worried about the plane immediately. They, they pulled him out of the airplane. People were cheering. They were carrying him on his shoulders. And uh, he kept worrying about what they were going to do to the airplane. The crowds were surging on, and they actually did damage the airplane. Uh, people cut uh, pieces of fabric out of it and one thing. And, well, you know how people are. And uh, the gendarmes were beating guys on the head trying to get them away from the plane. And there's a picture of the plane. There's a, there's a great uh, movie, a newsreel of the period of the airplane uh, being pushed along. Uh, by these uh, ground personnel and millions of people running alongside of it and grabbing the wheels and, and holding out of the propeller and they pushed it into a into the hangar and they took Lindbergh away. Uh, but it was it was a great dramatic moment, probably one of the great dramatic moments of uh, all personal adventuredom. And uh, Lindbergh, uh, of course, became instantly over the world. He became a, a, a fantastic symbol of a whole new era that was dawning into the whole thing. And uh, it's uh, it's funny, you don't, uh, you, you can't, you, only if you're a flyer yourself, do you, you, I guess, do you really realize what a, what a, what a fantastic event it was, what a tremendous uh, amount of courage it had to take. You know, a couple of years ago, I got a thing from a listener. Some listener wrote me uh, a note, and uh, I had done a show about how many people uh, during their lifetime will be around many tremendous historical events. And because we are so uh, casual about our own history and what's happening, we don't even go down to see it. Uh, in fact, uh, I've always felt that uh, if you had a group of peasants walking around in old England, you know, and one of them says, uh, Forsooth, Wamba, the, uh, the lords of the manor have gathered in the field. They're signing something called the Magna Carta. Do you want to go down and watch them? And I can hear Wamba say, oh, get out. Those lords are always signing some cockamamie paper. Forget it. <laughs> I mean, you know, so they go on and go to the bull baiting or whatever it is that they're going to and forget all about it and they'll go near it. But uh, I've always felt this is the way we are about our history. I've, uh, and, and anyway, this woman wrote me this note. I did a show on that premise, and she wrote me a note and said, uh, you have no idea how true it is. She said that she is living in a house in Long Island that is right next to what used to be Roosevelt Field, the, the actual airfield. You know, they got a big shopping center and all that now, but that was where the airfield was. And she said that, that she was a kid, see, and, of course, all this talk of this guy going to fly the ocean <laughs> was, was a big deal around there, just right around the airport. You know, the airplane was there. And so she says that the, that the day that this happened, that the airplane went out, she was trying to get her dad to go down there. And he could, oh, get out, that guy's a nut. Oh, yeah, who is a publicity stunt? Forget it, you know, and he wouldn't go out. And she said, she said she remembers vividly the old man, you know, he's sitting in the living room, he's reading the newspaper, he's not even going to get up. She says, so she went to the kitchen window and watched out of the window. They could see the airplane. And she says the airplane, Lindbergh's airplane, went right over their house on the takeoff. And she kept saying, Dad, 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 go. She says, Dad, I don't know. Oh, man. And so she says she always remembers that. She says years afterwards, she was always needling her old man, you know, about that. She was always saying, well, Dad, of course, I'm not going to take you as any kind of a judge on what we should go to see or not. You're the one who wouldn't go to see Lindbergh take off. <laughs> and uh, and she, she wrote me this letter about this, this this fantastic moment in her life, seeing this plane. She says at the time, of course, it was just an exciting event. That was all. But then when it all began to snowball and began to be a world event, of course, it was uh, quite obvious. Well, I... I uh, uh, this this uh, getting back to the Lindbergh thing. I I uh, one time met a guy, uh, and uh, this was this was a few years back. I met this this 
guy who had worked in the Ryan factory uh, in in uh, St. Louis. And he was an old, old duffer, and he he was retired. And he had worked on, with a couple of other guys, he had worked on the final tuning of this Ryan airplane when it was taken out of the, you know, Lindbergh fluid from the factory in, in uh, St. Louis, apparently. And he said that he had worked on the final tuning of this airplane when she was coming off the assembly line. And uh, he said that he... Uh, he didn't think much about it at the time. They <laughs> were working out another, just another job, another airplane. And uh, he says, oh, finally the day came when they, they rolled her out, out of the hangar. He says, this guy showed up to pick it up. He said they'd heard about him, of course. He'd been around the factory there. And he said he remembers the day when Lindbergh took delivery on the Spirit of St. Louis. He said it was a pretty little airplane. He says that they, he took it out on the field and uh, looked, checked it over, and he said he was right there. He says he was, he was there at the time. Of course, Lindbergh had, had apparently forced, had overlooked the entire manufacture of the plane. He was around while they were building it and so forth. He says, but uh, he was uh, working on the final tuning of the engine uh, as she left the factory for the for the first test flight. But uh, uh, I, I ran into it. Now, there's, there's a forgotten man. It's the guy that worked on it, you know. Can you, wouldn't you like to have interviewed the guy or been able to talk to the guy who built the, 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 the platform on which Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address? You know, <laughs> he built this thing. Well, I don't know. Anyway, so they just came and asked me to build this thing, you know. These politicians are always talking around here. I don't pay much attention to them. And so he built this thing. They're, they're all, these are all the great forgotten men in history. Uh, you know, they, uh, oh, there are hundreds of them. Like, uh, you know, the guy that, the guy that uh, made the quill pen, you see, that uh, was uh, used to sign the Magna Carta. Uh, there must have been some guy. You know, we think of these great historical moments as, uh, as sort of uh, entities unto themselves. And you, you never think about the... the uh, can you imagine the day when they were signing the uh, Declaration of Independence? Well, there had to be a porter come around, you know, filling the ink wells, and <laughs> you know, he's uh, he's uh, digging out the pens, and, and uh, he's laying out the desk and all that. And all the while, Benjamin Franklin, all these official guys are sitting around, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and all of them, John Hancock, and and. Uh, and they, they're, they're, they're waiting to sign, and here's this porter walking around. He's filling the ink wells, and he's making sure that the pens are getting the blotters out and all that stuff. And uh, he himself, I wonder whether he, whether he recognized this, uh, this, this enormous moment. But, but these are people who are lost. That would be a great short story, by the way, viewed from his standpoint. Uh, viewed from the standpoint of the guy who, well, that really, in a sense, is the basis of Gilderstern and Rosencrantz is dead, are dead, is dead. Aren't <laughs> that uh, that's the basis of that play? You know, that's a couple of supernumeraries in uh, in Hamlet. All of a sudden, show up with the play of their own. I've I've always wondered if if you if you wrote a play from the viewpoint of Polonius, uh, was Polonius really an old kook? Was he really a nut, or was he just a very early hippie? And uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and everyone knows. <laughs> and Ophelia, of course, uh, writing another play from Ophelia, I could, uh, from her standpoint, that's something else. She's a very nervous girl. And uh, <laughs> write a play from the standpoint of Ophelia. I've, uh, I've always uh, thought that it would be kind of interesting to write a play from the standpoint of, of Stephen Douglas, who, uh, yeah, who debated Lincoln. And, uh, and you know, these two were, were friends and at the same time very definite rivals. And they, they sat and battled each other all the time, but they had great respect for one another. But it would be an interesting uh, premise of a play. 
uh, where, where the two of them sat down and says, well, how about it? Let's have a couple of debates here, you know. And it, it, it can't hurt either one of us. It's going to give us a lot of publicity, you know. And, uh, and uh, Lincoln says, well, uh, yes, I can see that. That's certainly true. And uh, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll take the affirmative, you take the negative on the first uh, stump, and then we'll, then you will switch around, huh? Okay. Um, and so, well, it must have been something like that, uh, something along that line. And uh, but but Lincoln and uh, all these people, these great figures in history, and, and that includes, of course, uh, Lindbergh has to be a figure in history and is a figure in history. He's a figure in technological history, which is not quite the same as economic history, although they run parallel. Uh, he's not also always the same as, a, as a sociological history, too, of course, is all involved in technology. But the man that, that wrote that first... Uh, in fact, I'll tell you, I had, a, I had a, a, another guy that I met one time, an, an ancient character, uh, like, the, like the lay of the ancient mariner. And uh, this guy was one of the first guys. He was a very, very old man. And uh, he lived out in the Midwest, and he was one of the first guys hired by Henry Ford. And uh, when Henry Ford decided to build cars, <laughs> and he, he went around, and you know what he hired? Of course, in those days, they, you, you didn't go out and hire an automobile mechanic because there weren't many automobiles, so hiring an automobile mechanic would not be easy, you know. So uh, uh, he went out and he hired plumbers. Yeah, well, actually, today, most automobile mechanics still are, but uh, nevertheless, he went out and he hired, he, uh, he hired plumbers, and uh, that's not to put down plumbers, but it's a different field. And he went out and he hired plumbers, and this guy was a, was a plumber's helper. He was a kid, see? And so uh, he heard that this guy was looking for work workers, and so he went down there, and uh, he was tired, you know, of the business with the, with the plumber's helpers and all that stuff, and... He was getting a little tired of that scene. So uh, somebody, uh, he thought they were going to build locomotives, he said. He said he had an idea that they're building locomotives down there. And so uh, he went into this factory. It was just a long, low shed, which now today is a historical place. They have it preserved, I guess, in Detroit. And he goes down to that shed, and here's this tall, skinny guy with this long neck. And, uh, yeah, he's wearing a black suit, and he walks in. And uh, the guy says to him, and he told, he told, you know, he he had a, he had an absolute photographic uh, memory of the event. You know, he's getting his job. That's all. And he walked in, and he was a kid, and he had a lunch bucket and all that stuff. It was at his lunch hour, and uh, this guy says, uh, uh, "You're looking for work?" And and the kid says, "Yep." He said, "Well, you come to the right place. Uh, let me let me see how are you with how are you with metal drilling." And the kid says, "Guess all right." He says, well, here, I want you to drill a... I want you to drill a hole in this piece of iron here. Here, I'll give you the drill. He wanted to see whether the guy could really use a tool. So he's, oh, he's okay. So he drilled a hole in this thing. I guess he did it all right. So uh, Ford says to him, when can you start? And he says, now. He says, okay, all right. He says, you go on back to that bench there and you ask for Jake. And uh, here were about four other guys there, and they're pounding on stuff. And he walks back there, and he says, by George, the next thing you know, he is working on one of the very first Ford automobiles. He had no idea what he was doing. They told him to drill holes and something. So all day long, he's drilling holes. <laughs> now, how's that for being, uh, you know, for being right there at the, at the beginning of something? And, uh, and that, that I talked to this guy. And uh, he was a very old man at the time, and... Uh, and I was going to school, and uh, he was he was kind of a legend around there. But the, the truth is that he had worked on the very first Ford automobiles, and uh, he was retired now. And uh, he, he, by the way, drove a Ford. In case you're interested, 
<laughs> and so uh, I, I uh, then I, I worked. I, I, I talked to another guy one time. You know, talk about this industry right here. Uh, I talked to another guy who uh, who was a very old man at the time. Uh, this is one of the rare times that I myself have met a great historical character. And of course, I being uh, being uh, in my teens, I didn't you know I didn't think much about it, but. Uh, I was sent by the army. I was just uh, I was 17. I was sent by the army to this school, and it was a school. It was a radio technique technicians high high frequency school, and uh, there was a guy had an office down at the other end of this building, where the school was in Chicago, and he had his name on the door, and uh, a couple of the instructors who were much older and very official types, they were always telling us what a great man this guy was in the early days of radio. And, of course, uh, uh, like most 15-, 16-, 17-year-old kids, I had absolutely no interest whatsoever in history or anything else that had to do with the past. And so uh, we were walking past all the time. And one day I see the door is open, and this old guy that's with the silver hair is sitting in there. And he's at his desk, and he's talking to somebody else. And out of, the, out of, out of this office came my instructor. He was in, uh, one of the instructors in the school. And he said, say, he said, come on in here, kid. And there was myself and another guy. He says, "Come on in, okay? I want you to meet somebody." He said, "You might, it might be interesting to you." And so we walked in, and here's this old man sitting at his desk. And the instructor says, uh, "This is so and so." He introduced a friend that I was with at the time. He says, "This is so and so," and this is Gene Shepard. And the old man says, "I'm glad to meet you, boys. Do you enjoy radio? Do you enjoy uh, working with electrical equipment and tech?" Technical equipment and electronics, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." You know, <laughs> of course we did. See, and uh, then the uh, the instructor says, "Oh, by the way," he says, "This is uh, Mr. DeForest," and uh, we, you know, to me that that meant nothing particularly. It was just one of those names. See, and uh, so the old man wanted to talk. Apparently, he he felt very garrulous that day, and so he said, uh, "He said, what what do you intend to do uh, when you?" Uh, get out of the army uh, are you intending to make radio or, or electronics your career and he had this kind of nice uh, you were very very nice uh, garrulous old guy and and uh, my friend says yeah yeah I'd like that uh, I'd like to go into it and he says well I think you'll find it very rewarding and I I feel that uh, that the that the uh, the future is is unlimited in this field he said in fact we're right now working here in our laboratories on something that uh, May uh, eventually be in the future, probably in your future. And uh, I said, "What are you working on?" Being a kid, you know, I think it's going to be radar or something like that. We're all involved in it, so that's all I could think of. See, and he said, "Well, would you care to? Uh, would you care to see what we're working on?" And so I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And so my friend says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Well, in the back of his office, they had they had all these uh, cathode ray tubes that were hanging from racks. They were building them there, by the way, in this, this building, and they had all these cathode ray tubes, building them by hand, had all these cathode ray tubes and so on, and they had, uh, off on a bench, they had this big, tremendous rack and panel circuit. It was a big rack and panel with a, with a, with a big uh, scope in the middle of it, and they had all kinds of circuit uh, breakers and signal generators and stuff all around there. And a couple of his workers were working on this thing. And he says, would you care to see what we're working on? And so we said, yeah, yeah. Well, so they're turning all this stuff on. And on comes this, this cathode ray. It was green, of course. And on comes the cathode ray tube. And they turn on a lot of signal generators and stuff. And this pink glow starts to come over the cathode ray tube. And my friend says, well, what are you, what are you working on? He says, well, we're, uh, 
we're experimenting with something that uh, we believe uh, has a great future. We're experimenting with, uh, well, uh, color television. And they were working on color TV. And uh, here was old Lady Forrest. And so uh, we talked for about a half an hour. And we, we went on out back through the office. And uh, when I got out, I said to, I said to uh, Mr. DeForest, you know, being fantastic, naive today, you know, I said to him, I said, uh, I said, well, how long have you been in radio? <laughs> and he said, well, he said, I've been playing with it since I was a boy. He said, I enjoy it very much. And uh, so I go out with my friend, and the instructor's with us. He says, you idiot, what, what kind of a question was that? And I said, well, what, 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 what? He said, do you know who that was? I said, well, yes, it says Dr. Lady Forrest on the door there. Dr. Lady Forrest. He says, Dr. Lady Forrest picked up where Marconi stopped. He was the guy that put the grid in the tube. He invented the tube. I said, yeah, he invented the tube? He said, yeah, you idiot. So they're crying out loud. And my, my friend, you know, typical, typical attitude of kids towards history. See, my friend, we're getting, a, we're getting in the elevator now, see, and the, the, uh, the instructor has gone on down to the coffee shop. And so we're in the elevator, and this, this buddy of mine, I don't even remember his name. I just knew him in the school there for a while. The buddy says to me, he says, he says you know, hey, why, why, did you make such a big, why did you make such a big scene over these old duffers? If he hadn't done it, somebody else would have invented it. I said, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you know how these old guys are. They're always talking about the past. I crying a lot. And so we're in the elevator. We go down. The sun is shining. And then we walk past the drugstore, and there's a great big display of tubes in the drugstore. And it says DeForest tubes. They're all out there. It's like, and here, here up in this up in this, this old battered office and uh, in this backwater of Chicago with a bunch of uh, Signal Corps yardbirds learning uh, basic ultra-high-frequency techniques was this old man sitting there. The only time I ever actually met really, and talked to a man who could be called a pivotal character in history. And uh, if, you, uh, if, you're, you know, if you don't know anything about electronics out there, that would be roughly the equivalent of meeting, uh, if you're interested in history, would be, say, meeting uh, Thomas Jefferson. Wouldn't it be about the equivalent? Really? Uh, it would be, uh, and if, if, say, if you're interested in showbiz, it would be roughly the equivalent of, uh, say, of meeting, uh, well, maybe Shakespeare. Yeah, you know, and having a little talk with him. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he, in, in the radio and in the whole field of electronics, occupies roughly that same place. It would be, it would be almost the equivalent if you, if you were to meet Orville Wright and then say to him, uh, have you been flying long? I mean, uh, <laughs> Be a kind of a silly question, you know, but that's the way it is. You, know, you just you just stick your foot in your old big fat mouth every time you turn around. Yeah, I remember I remember seeing this great cartoon in the New Yorker, and uh, it showed this. It was a cocktail party. And the New Yorker runs heavily to cocktail party cartoons, and it showed this large, matronly, uh, Darien type lady, you know, the old Westport type. She's got this, you know, a tremendous superstructure. She looks like a, a brigantine in full in full sail, scudding before the wind. And uh, she's talking to this man, and he's wearing a uniform. He's, he's, he's a gentleman in his 60s. You can see his jowls, white hair. And he's got four stars on his shoulders. 
and he's got uh, this tremendous bank of of uh, of, uh, <laughs> of, of fruit cake, you know, of all this, this this fruit salad all over there. He has ribbons from every known field of combat. He's fought in eighteen wars, and she says, "Oh." Uh, uh, it's always a pleasure to meet one of the boys in the army. Uh, what did you do in the war? He's <laughs> just looking at her. <laughs> he probably commanded 18 armies. He commanded the 7th Corps, you know. But, uh, yeah, you just stick your foot in it all the time. But so I remember old Lee DeForest. He was very kind when I said to him, uh, how long have you been in radio? He didn't. You know, he didn't come up with a with a knee and a groin. <laughs> he just sort of smiled. You know, you don't ask Dr. DeForest how long he's been in radio. It just isn't done. 